In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Since I've been coming here, my whole life has been changed. That's a comment that I've heard from people new to this and other churches, because that's what the Holy Spirit does in people through churches. If we're not dead in the Spirit, then we're in the Spirit changing, moving towards the prize, which is a new world that will finally explain, heal, and complete this present world that so delights but also hurts and tests us. I love what T.S. Eliot said about this. He said that in Christ we see both a new world in the old made, ex- <clears throat> in the old made explicit, understood, and the completion of its partial ecstasy and the resolution of its partial horror. Switching from Eliot to Frost, we have miles to go before we'll see that fully. The Bible describes the church as the people on the way. Let's strive to be a church where everyone is moving all the time. Ideally, a church is always attracting new people while also helping longtime members go deeper into the life of faith. One of the most reliable paths into that deeper life is stewardship. Stewardship is the word we use to describe our relationship to time, talent, and money. There are a lot of different ways we could think about these things. Here we're taught not to see them as our own possession, but rather as God's endowment with ourselves as trustees invested with full authority and power of attorney. We are free, responsible, and finally accountable for the way, for the use that we make of our endowment. The church, we're taught that we are stewards full-time, not just in the parts of life that are church-connected. Under this arrangement, you parents are also trusted with the responsibility, care, feeding, and education of your children. Business ownership is stewardship, and so are gardening and teaching. Stewardship colors all of our activities. Once a year, the church asks us to review our stewardship specifically with church support in mind, asks us to pledge. Governments levy taxes, and businesses sell services. Churches are funded by donations. Members give money so the church can give away its ministry for free. I've done a lot of asking you for money since I've been your dean. Your response has been inspiring. I have to be a careful steward of what I ask for because every time I ask, you say yes. The church asks us to give sacrificially, proportionately, and cheerfully for its work. The time-honored standard for giving is the tithe, 10% of income. For most of us, that's a goal to work towards. For a few of us, it's a base to work from. Since some of us are brand new to faith and others far along, it's normal that our giving levels and our commitment to the idea of stewardship itself will cover a wide range. Giving takes some getting used to. We crawl, then walk, then run. Suffer suffer the beginning stewards as Jesus might have put it, and prevent them not, because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. 
The Bible makes it very clear that crawlers, walkers, and runners may all be rich or poor or middle class. The poor widow who puts the one dollar in her purse into the collection box gets high praise from Jesus. The rich feller who paid for the new roof on the temple doesn't impress him. Though even when I need money for the roof, I know that God doesn't count like we do. A person new to church, we'll call her Smith, might think of it like this. Smith recognizes that she has obligations to others, including now the church, which she has added to her very crowded life. She understands that the church, after all, has expenses, like any business, she thinks. She will pledge when asked and pay when reminded. She's learned to give and she's generous. God bless her. What gives Smith pause is not the giving, but the concept. This idea that all that she is and has belongs to God for her to administer and trust is difficult to swallow. How was her job a gift? She had to apply for it. Her money didn't fall on her from heaven or grow on trees. She worked for it, took chances for it, saved it, and others frittered theirs away. So Smith says to herself, I'll pledge to the church cheerfully and throw in something extra for the roof. But I've got my own feelings about this stewardship business, and as for the tithe, that's a fantasy. So what change might lie ahead for Smith in years to come if she stays faithful? One change is that through time her giving may become a habit. With practice, it becomes intertwined with two of the seven kinds of prayer that she learned about in, in confirmation class. Those seven are confession, petition, intercession, thanksgiving, oblation, praise, and adoration. It's like a ladder. Thanksgiving and oblation, which I think are the fourth and fifth steps, are a dance between God's action in our lives and our action in God's life. Giving thanks is how we learn to see the grace of God that before we hadn't even noticed. Oblation, which means volunteering for service, is how we become instruments of grace to others who may not notice. Those two prayers start rearranging our motivations. And so one year stewardship season rolls around and Smith finds herself not thinking so much about the church's need for money as about her desire to give something back to God. It's not just about the money. She begins to try this idea of stewardship on for size and to see her decisions as those of a servant, of a master away on a journey. She's motivated, motivated by a strong sense of duty now to this master for whom she more and more has a high regard. She notices Jones, three pews up and across the aisle, who's been at this longer than Smith has. Jones acts his duty out in the way that he treats his family, shows up in the way he works, his willingness to put others first. He gives up nights coaching kids in an inner-city baseball league. And it shows him the time he gives to the church. Last spring, when we had vigil services here before the executions, I was here once or twice until midnight. I was by myself the first time. Second time, as the night wore on, I heard footsteps in the back. I looked up, and there was George Morledge padding down the aisle. He didn't want me to be here that late all by myself. 
George was on his master's business, looking out for his friend, the dean. That's stewardship of something besides money. In church one Sunday morning, Jones gives a stewardship talk. He describes how over time he and his family had come to pledge, not on the basis of what was left over after taxes, expenses, and luxuries, but off the top. They're now givers of the first fruits. That's stewardship of money, pure and simple. Influenced by Jones, Smith is now beginning to measure her giving in terms of a percentage of her income. The tithe is no longer a fantasy to her. She respects it as an honorable standard, though for her it is still a very distant goal. For his part, Jones sees it as a solid standard and a good challenge. It used to seem unreachable to him, but after several years of increases, he's getting pretty close. What had helped him along was his friendship with Adams, for whom the tithe had long been a fact of life. Adams told Jones that it was easier to live with than he had once thought possible. He did have to cut back a bit during the recession, but when he found his feet again, he got back to 10%. It helped him keep his bearings through the struggle. Adams is neither poor nor rich. His name is on a plaque or two at the church, but not at the top with the big givers. It's down there with the smaller ones. Because after his tithe, there just isn't that much left to give to special projects. Five years ago, he lost his wife to cancer. He wears a Legacy Society pen that shows that he has left the church a little something in his will. Most of what he has will go to his kids, of course, because although they've grown up now, he still sees them as his first love and responsibility. He sees the whole of life, not just the church, as God's. Adams is not very good at record keeping. He needs those quarterly reminders that it's time to get his payments up to date. Spiritual growth and personal efficiency don't necessarily go hand in hand. Adams was on the vestry once. He stood for election that time from a sense of duty, but he didn't like it much and he never ran again. He's grateful for those who volunteer for that responsibility. He is a chalice bearer. Giving the blood of Christ is a powerful experience for him. In Adam's life, that dance between thanksgiving and oblation has, through years of habit, turned into a prayer of adoration. For him, belief in God has turned to love of God in neighbor. That night last spring, George and I listened to the creaky noises these, these timbers make when it's dark outside and the candles flicker in the silence. We prayed some and chatted some to pass the time. We prayed for men about to die and for those who had died or suffered at their hands. Churches do such things because they make sense to us, even when they don't make sense to everybody else. We pray and care for all the other members of the household, whether they pray or, take, pray or care for us or not. We love our work. We buried a young woman here on Friday. Her siblings had gone to school here, and that was the family's only connection to this church. But in grief, they knew no better place to turn. Amber, Victoria, and the All Saints Guild bathed their grief in the holiness of love and hope. 
For some, the love of God comes suddenly in an overwhelming moment of grace, but for others, it builds gradually, almost imperceptibly, over years of spiritual growth, fed by prayer, study, action, giving. The result is the same. At the last, we give because we know and love God. We know in our head and in our hearts that we have received from the Master's hand far beyond our capacity for service. So there's nothing left to do but praise.